you guys would turn, open up your Bibles to uh, Ephesians chapter 1. We're going to be in verses 11 through 14. How many of you have a wish list? You know, it's Christmas time. Uh, the things you want in this life. I'm even talking the 10-year plan. Uh, you know, something I used to deeply desire is my American dream. To have the picture-perfect family. You know, to be rich. Possess the, the large house and the cool cars. You know, even in my mindset at some point, becoming president. Because then I could make everything right. I could do a better job. Um, and I think if I still had that mindset of that American dream, you know, today Trump would have just grabbed my heart. I would have been all in. Yeah, let's go for it. But his wishes didn't come to pass. I'm not rich. I don't have a big house. I have cool cars. I have an awesome family. <laughs> save, save myself on that one. Um, but have you ever thought what it would be, what it'd be like if you possessed the things on this list, on your list? Who would you really become if you had all the desires of your heart? I can say with conviction that my wishes would not have led me to God, but against him. I would be arrogant and despise anything that tried to take away my kingdom. But praise God, because he had a better plan. Better plans than what my plans and desires are. And God, from the foundations of the cosmos or the universe, chose us in love to unite all things in him. And he will accomplish this through his son Christ, who has given us redemption by shedding his blood on the cross in order to pay the price of sin. And this gracious act leads us to forgiveness, to know it, and that we haven't earned it. We should have died on that cross instead of Jesus because we have refused to be in a loving relationship with the one true God and have chosen to walk in rebellion and darkness. Now, despite this broken relationship, Christ dies in our place. And thus it goes against what is expected in a relationship that has been permanently harmed. See, Christ responds with a contraconditional love. You see, he should have left us. He should have forsaken us. But he went against that expectation. He doesn't just stop there, though. He also resurrects from the dead, defeating death and sin, allowing us to be saved. But he doesn't stop there. For he sends into heaven and sends us the helper, the Holy Spirit, allowing us to be sanctified, which is where we are expected to start walking and practicing the right conditions of relationship. You know, to love God and to love our neighbor. But he still doesn't stop there because he promises to come again, to bring his people into the full unity of the kingdom of Christ. And yet he doesn't stop there because 
He is the eternal God, and we will be his people for eternity. So hearing this good news, you know, it truly makes me realize that God is worthy of praise because he's given us everything we need to fulfill his purpose. Our God is truly great. There's no other lowercase g God compares. And as we have studied Ephesians, remember that Paul is writing to a church that is in the midst of a culture that worships the gods that we now refer to as mythology. But these gods didn't care about the people. In fact, they viewed humanity as slaves and the means to their own ends. But our God loves us and treasures us. So to further understand this, let's read the text for today. So Ephesians 1, verses 11 through 14. It says, In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things, according to the counsel of his will. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it, to the praise of his glory." See, here we first see that Paul emphasizes the fact that through Christ we have gained an inheritance. Through Christ we have gained an inheritance. So what jumps to mind when you think of inheritance? See, I, I tend to think of money, an estate, something that we're going to physically possess. But is that what Paul is referring to? I would suggest that God isn't going to give us money and an estate. But God possesses a heritage that he does plan to give us, which is the inheritance. See, we will need the help of Scripture to begin to unpack this concept of God's heritage. And we see Paul speak of inheritance in reference to the kingdom of God. I'm going to go over three verses with you. You can turn to them if you wish. Um, I'm going to read them to you right now. So in Ephesians 5, verse 5, it says, For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. In Galatians 5, Verses 19 through 21, it says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. In 1 Corinthians 
chapter 6, verses 9 through 10, says, Or do you not know that the unrighteous will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who practice homosexuality, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor rivalers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. See, we see the evidence of who will not inherit God's heritage. But I don't point these verses out to focus on the disqualification to inherit, but the commonality that the inheritance is the kingdom of God. Before we continue to look into the kingdom of God as our inheritance, I just want to state uh, that this is not the only interpretation of our inheritance. You see, our salvation and eternal life are life are also a part of this inheritance. Now, it suggests that those are also assumed by being a part of the kingdom of God. So that's it for the disclaimer. So what is the kingdom of God? Is it like Disneyland's magical kingdom? You know, the happiest place on earth? (laughs) No, it's better than Disney could ever achieve. Before we dive in, to further scripture, logically, we can break down the phrase kingdom of God. See, a kingdom requires three things. A king, a people, and a place. A king, a people, and a place. Since the kingdom is possessed by God, guess who the king is? It's God. And so Paul claims that in the first Timothy 117 here, to the king of the ages, immortal, invisible, the only God, be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. But more specifically, it is Christ the king. And as John writes in Revelation 1 verses 4 through 6, drawn to the seven churches that are in Asia, Grace to you and peace from him who is and who was and who is to come, and from the seven spirits who are before his throne, and from Jesus Christ, the faithful witness, the firstborn of the dead, and the ruler of kings on earth, to him who loves us and has freed us from our sins by his blood and made us a kingdom, priests, to his God and Father. To him be glory and dominion forever and ever. Amen. See, from John's description, we see that there are people, that the people are those that are allegiant to Christ the King. And I'm not taking time to break down each of these verses in the full context, only to paint the contextual picture of how the Bible sees the kingdom of God. So John refers to Jesus Christ as the ruler of the kings of the earth. Thus, he is the king of kings. And Paul makes that same reference in 1 Timothy 6.15, which we're not going to go over. Also, interestingly, John states that Christ has made us a kingdom. It is a kingdom full of priests to praise God the Father. And a kingdom doesn't just need a, a king, but it also needs a people. So in Ephesians, Paul refers to the people of God as adopted sons. 
And I want to note that this doesn't exclude our sisters in Christ, but includes them. For the Ephesians, adoption meant that you were treated and cared for as a legitimate child of the adopter. And adoption also gave full rights of inheritance. So we are the people of God who are his sons and daughters who dwell in his kingdom. Let me ask you this. As the people of God, how are you to live as his children and inherit the kingdom? How are we to live as his children and inherit his kingdom? So let's look at a couple passages. First, turn with me to Luke 12, verse 22. Luke 12, verse 22. It says, in his... And he said to his disciples, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat, nor about your body, what you will put on. For life is more than food, and the body more than clothing. Consider the ravens. They neither sow nor reap. They have neither storehouse nor barn, and yet God feeds them. Of how much more value are you than the birds? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? If then you are not able to do as small a thing as that, why are you anxious about the rest? Consider the lilies, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass, which is alive in the field today, and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, how much more will he clothe you, O you of little faith? And do not seek what you are to eat and what you are to drink, nor be worried. For all the nations of the world seek after these things, and your Father knows that you need them. Instead, seek his kingdom and these things will be added to you. Fear not, little flock, for it is your, God, your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Sell your possessions and give to the needy. Provide yourselves with money bags that do not grow old, with a treasure in the heavens that does not fail, where no thief approaches and no moth destroys. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also." See, it's important to note that Jesus, our oldest brother, wants us to fully trust God the Father by how we act in this world. But not because he is an oppressive ruler that demands subjects be submitted to his abuse. No, he is a father who doesn't want his children to drift into anxiety but to know they are cared for and loved. All too often, we worry about what we think we need. And it leads us 
to selfishness when our Father wants us to be generous as he is generous. And Jesus even says that the Father's good pleasure is to give you the kingdom. So, a kingdom isn't just a a king and a people, but it also includes a place. A place for the king and the people to dwell together. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 19 through 22, it says, So then you are no longer strangers and aliens, but you are fellow citizens with the saints and members of the household of God built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure, being joined together, grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. See, God is fashioning a kingdom where we, the people, dwell with the king. Not just any king, it's God himself. It's almost like every U.S. citizen is living in the White House with the president. Now, obviously, that's not possible. But God is doing something as much greater than the White House. He is building eternal unity and intimacy between himself and his people. So to inherit the kingdom is to inherit the king, the people, and the place. And this is what God is bringing us into by his good pleasure. It's great that we we get Jesus Christ the king, you know, the promised Holy Spirit to help us and to be adopted and know God the Father's love. Those are all great. You know, the place, it it makes sense for us to be together with the king. But are you as excited that we are each other's inheritance as well? You, You might be thinking, either everyone else is getting the short end of the stick and getting you, or you're getting the short end of the stick by getting everyone else. And I want to be clear that Jesus is the focus, the greatest part of our inheritance. But how unifying is it to know that we get each other as well? to be brought into glory, to share in the greatness of our Lord and continue to love each other for eternity. Another question for you. So how does knowing we will inherit the kingdom help us accomplish his purpose now? How does knowing we will inherit the kingdom help us accomplish his purpose now? First of all, understanding that we are working towards full unity is huge. See, being a Lone Ranger Christian, it isn't an option. Being selfish isn't an option. Being divisive rather than making relationships that are based upon God's love isn't an option. 
being a worshiper of money, of self, intelligence, or any other idol isn't an option. See, if we can't get past the fact that God is bringing about unity, as he stated in Ephesians 1.10, then you're going to struggle to be submitted to God the King. You see, we need to understand that Christ gave us salvation. He gave it to us, not to stay in our sin and rebellion against him. As Paul argues in Romans 6, you can study that on your own. But this salvation frees us from the continuing in rebellion of God in order to have relationship with this wonderful God. This life is meant to be lived for God, to love him and to love each other as he commanded. See, he is working this out through us in the process of sanctification. And we need to be transformed because we ain't there yet. Let's look at Romans 12, verses 1 through 2. It says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Do you present your very life as a living sacrifice to God? How do you know? Who is the judge that says you are a good servant of God? Can I make a couple suggestions? You are not the best judge of being a good servant of God. So you need to submit yourself to that which is the best judge. And I'd give to you the the first judge of, of this is the word of God. See, we need the word to help us understand who we are to be. And when you're in need of help to interpret the word, then use resources from biblical teachers and scholars. Now, another judge is the brothers and sisters around you that are submitted to the word of God. Because your brothers and sisters know you. And this is why it's important to be in community within the church. And thirdly, the Holy Spirit who dwells in the people of God. How do we know if it is the Spirit of God or not? Well, does it align with the Word of God or not? And is it building up the people of God or not? And if not, then get away from that spirit. It is not a spirit that is submitted or worshiping God at that point. And Paul continues in Romans 12 by describing gifts that that differ 
but are meant to be used in building up the members of the body of Christ. By using your gifting for others means you have to live sacrificially, as verse 1 and 2 commands. And it's important for us to grow in this understanding because this examples the kingdom of God in this dark and broken world. John chapter 13, verse 34 through 35, helps us to understand how we are to give our lives to each other as Christ has for us. It says, A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another. Just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. And by this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. You see, we are to love each other, marking us as disciples of Jesus. And this marker is connected to another marker that Jesus gives to us. You see, he gave us the Holy Spirit, which brings me to my second point. In the Holy Spirit, we have received the down payment of God's kingdom. In the Holy Spirit, we have received the down payment of God's kingdom. You see, without this down payment, we would struggle to understand God's committed promise to us. Back in Ephesians chapter 1, Verse 13 says, In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of your salvation, and believed in him, were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit, who is the guarantee of our inheritance until we acquire possession of it. So the praise of his glory. See, the Holy Spirit is pivotal in our relationship with God. The fact that God has given us his spirit gives us insight into how committed he is to us. See, he isn't going to leave us or forsake us. Christ has proposed, and the spirit is the wedding dowry, the engagement ring, the down payment on the house, the signed will of an inheritance and then some. See, we understand that a woman won't marry a man unless a promise of commitment is made. And we understand that a bank won't loan you money to buy a house without a down payment. The point here is that Christ is honorable to give us such a valuable guarantee in the Spirit. And this is an exclusive gift. Turn to John 14. I also have it up here. John 14, 15. It says, If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees him nor knows him. You 
know him. For he dwells with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Know this, that the world cannot receive the helper. Only those that know Christ. Because they have been brought into intimate relationship with him by his redeeming blood. Remember back in Ephesians 1.13, the sealing of the Spirit came when we heard of the gospel and had faith or gave allegiance to Christ. And I'm not saying that the Spirit had no involvement in you being able to come to this understanding. But let me give you an example. Wives out here in the audience, did you say, I do, to your husband with or without vows in the ring? You can answer. With. I've heard some say with. That's good. Yeah. You got a ring and vows. Husbands. Did you say I do to your wife with or without vows and a ring? With. Now, did you interact before that moment of commitment where you gave the vows and the ring? Yeah, of course. Of course you interacted. See, God is interacting with us in similar fashion. See, he is pursuing us to restore a relationship with us that we broke. And when we, when we respond with allegiance and faith, he responds with sealing of the Spirit, with promised inheritance of the eternal kingdom. You see, he put a ring on it. He put a ring on it. He loves us. But remember, he also wants us to love. And we need help in doing so. Without the down payment of the Spirit, you see, we would have no chance to walk in holiness and love. So let's turn to Galatians 5. Sorry, no slide this time. Galatians 5. Galatians 5, verse 19. We're going to go through 19 through 25. So this is why we need the Spirit. It says, Now the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the things like these, I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But, there is a but, the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. If we live by the Spirit, let us also keep in step with the Spirit. Let us not be con- become conceited, provoking one another, envying one another. Sorry, I went into t- verse 26 there. 
<clears throat> we have all experienced the works of the flesh. All of us. But, Paul states, this doesn't inherit the kingdom of God. By continuing in the works of the flesh, you don't give allegiance to the king and his law of love. Now, by the Holy Spirit that has been given to us, we are to bear fruit that is good to God. I want you to realize this fruit isn't just for us to keep for ourselves, but it is the fruit that is given to each other and to the world. For example, my self-control by the Spirit will prevent me from giving into a fit of anger because you ate my last scoop of ice cream. I'm angry, but I'm going to control it. Back and down. You're welcome. Okay. So obviously this plays out much deeper in our relationships with each other. But for time's sake, let's continue to flesh out this verse. So when demonstrating this fruit, it says, against such things there is no law. And I want to say that this doesn't mean that the fruit of the Spirit is lawless. In fact, it is in perfect alignment with God's law. I have another verse to help clarify. Turn to Romans 7. Romans chapter 7. Romans 7, we're going to start in verse 4 and go through 6. Romans 7, 4 through 6. Likewise, my brothers, you also have died to the law through the body of Christ, so that you may belong to another, to him who has been raised from the dead, in order that we may bear fruit for God. For while we were living in the flesh, Our sinful passions, aroused by the law, were at work in our members to bear fruit for death. But now we are released from the law, having died to that which held us captive, so that we serve in the new way of the Spirit and not in the old way of the written code. See, we are freed from the written law that was given to expose our sinful passions, condemning us to death. But because of Christ's death and resurrection, he pays the price with his own death to get us out of the death sentence we faced. And Paul, in verses prior, uh, in this chapter uh, 7, uses the example of a marriage law. See, the wife is bound to the husband until he dies. And then she is released from that law and can marry again. And so Christ's death was the only way to fulfill the requirements of the law. Otherwise, we would be the ones that die. And now the resurrection leads us to take on a new life, 
a new identity as if we were issued a new birth certificate, a driver's license, and a passport. And it was not to bear the fruit of sinful passions again, but to bear fruit for God. For now we are citizens of his kingdom. We are no longer to be conceited and envying towards each other. We now serve the new way of the Spirit, living the way that Jesus, the King, commands. And this command is the law of the land to love him and love one another. So when you feel like the Spirit is pushing you towards something or to say something, let me caution you to take time to use discernment. Is this feeling going to lead you to act in a way that obeys the commands of Jesus and bear fruit as the word clarifies? See, I would question someone claiming the Spirit is causing them to fall down and spasm, saying that they were slain in the Spirit. See, how does that bear fruit per the word and obey the command of Jesus to love? See, the Spirit of God leads us to build each other up, showing preference to each other, serving each other, to sacrificially love each other as Christ loves us. And there will be a day when we do fully love God and each other. This brings me to my third point. We will eventually possess the fullness of God's kingdom. We will eventually possess the fullness of God's kingdom. The truth is, today we don't operate in absolute unity within Christ and his church. Which is why Ephesians says, until we acquire possession of it, it being the inheritance. See, we have been redeemed by Christ, given the Holy Spirit to help guide us in following Christ, but we are the weak links. See, we are still dealing with the brokenness of past sin, current sin, and future sin. There is darkness around us, but realize We only know there is darkness because a light is shining from Christ. So how do we pursue this unifying light? The saving beacon, despite the darkness around and within the church. First, we continue to prioritize Christ, the King, as our highest good in every corner of an aspect of our life. From how we use our time and our talents and treasures. Second, we show each other love. And this is very much tied to the first because in showing love to each other, we show that Christ is our highest good. What about when we aren't getting along? 
Well, Christ says, set boundaries for us to walk in. Turn with me to Matthew 18. Matthew 18. We're going to start in verse, verse 15 and go through 18. It says, Matthew 18, 15, If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. See, I love seeing this work out with kids. <clears throat> I recently had a grade schooler come up to me and said, Teacher, this girl keeps screaming directly into my ear. Can you tell her to stop? I didn't ask, So did you ask her to stop yelling in your ear? And then he admitted, No, I didn't. He walks back to the girl asked her to stop yelling in his ear, and I heard her say, okay, I'm sorry for doing that, and then they continued to play the game. It's great when we go to our brother and sister about a sin we see or are experiencing from them, and they repent. It's great. However, it's very hard when there isn't any repentance. Yet Christ gives us the direction that is loving. So they didn't hear you. Now you bring in another who sees the same issue. And if that doesn't go anywhere, then it goes to the church. And I want you to see that it isn't just the elders or leadership. It is the local church that is to deal with the unrepentant sin. Keyword, unrepentant sin. Even to the point of stating to that person they aren't a part of the church anymore until they repent. And this is with tears. Okay? This is with tears and heartbreak to come to this point. You see, to ignore the sin of each other and to say we will be kind and love our unrepentant brother or sister is arrogant. It's not loving. See, Paul would and did say the same in 1 Corinthians 5. Suggest so you look that up on your own time. 1 Corinthians 5. And for the sake of time, um, you, can take, you can study that, uh, and if you want, you can further discuss with myself or Hans or anyone on leadership. Now this also relates to uh, Hans's teaching from last week on learning to live with one another in healthy disagreement. 
See, I suggest referring back to that spectrum of disagreement, which you can find on the, the teaching slides linked on the website. So lastly, <clears throat> we show pursuit of this unifying light shown by Christ in the midst of this dark world as it's raining right now <clears throat> by being ministers of reconciliation and ambassadors of Christ. Would you turn with me to 2 Corinthians chapter 5? We're going to be in verse 14 through 21. 2 Corinthians 5, starting in verse 14. For the love of Christ controls us, because we have concluded this, that one has died for all, therefore all have died. And he died for all, that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him who for their sake died and was raised. From now on, therefore... <clears throat> Pause for a second. Remember, when you see therefore, you need to ask yourself, what is it therefore? So, let's, let's stay paused. It's therefore because the love of Christ controls us. See, we are allegiant and obedient to our King, Jesus. We follow his law of love. So now let's continue with the verse. So therefore, because of the love of Christ, we regard no one according to the flesh. Even though we once regarded Christ according to the flesh, we regard him thus no longer. Thus, <clears throat> Uh, therefore, it is, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away. Behold, the new has come. And all of this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ, God making his appeal through us. We implore you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. <clears throat> See, Christ reconciled us. And so he gives us this position of ministering reconciliation. See, we are to serve each other by reminding each other of what Christ has done to reestablish relationship between you and him, between his people and himself. And it doesn't stop there as Christ didn't reach out to the perfect people. He reached out to those who were in sin against him. See, he wants us to carry the same service to those who are in the world, to be ambassadors of Christ. And this is in hope of them coming to know the love of Christ and give allegiance to him. See, we reflect what Jesus has been doing in our lives, how we are a part of his kingdom, and what is the kingdom? What is the character of this 
God, this Savior, this Lord, this King and Father. To be a minister of reconciliation and an ambassador of Christ means that you are reconciled to Christ, that you have a relationship with this gracious God who contraconditionally loves you and has brought you into his church to be built up and glorified, but not for your glory, for his glory. And we will one day be glorified, but it's Christ's glory. (laughs) 